In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Do, do you remember those bracelets that said WWJD on them? What would Jesus do? These bracelets were all the rage when I was in middle school for whatever reason. I'm not sure how or why they took off in the way that they did, but everyone seemed to have one in the late 90s in my suburban Philadelphia public school. Now, I was a churchy kid, but these bracelets always struck me as strange. For one thing, the people wearing them never really seemed to me to be heeding the bracelet's call. Uh, I could preach a whole other sermon about what middle school was like for me, but I would not say the experience was one of being surrounded by little Jesuses. For another thing, I wasn't sure if even I, the, the churchiest kid around, really wanted to act like Jesus. I mean, wasn't Jesus kind of a, a goody two-shoes? Wasn't Jesus someone who always said the right thing and was very nice to everyone? It didn't seem like a good way to survive middle school, and it didn't seem like much fun either. It brings to mind the old quote from St. Augustine who prayed, please God, make me good, but not just yet. What would Jesus do, uh, you think, in middle school? Well, probably something good, but I don't want to do that right now. Thank you. But during the season of Lent, which we are in as we prepare for Easter, we are especially called to focus on Jesus, to pay attention to where Jesus is in our lives and how we can make room for him, how we can figure out what he wants for us, and yes, what he wants us to do. It is a time when it would be appropriate, if not to wear a woven bracelet on our wrist, at least to consider, to ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do today in Ukraine? What would Jesus do today in Gaza? What would Jesus do today in Armenia, in Syria, in as we pray each week at Grace Church? What would Jesus do in all the troubled regions of the world. I think about that phrase every week when we pray here for all the troubled regions in the world. What place is not troubled? Sometimes I think we say it as if troubled re regions are far flung, but what would Jesus do in our very neighborhood? as migrants seek asylum just a few blocks away, waiting weeks and weeks for shelter, for a shower, for a place to charge their phone. What 
would Jesus do in our city? I, I read a staggering statistic in the New York Times just over a week ago. The, the New York Times published an article saying that one in four children in New York City live in poverty. One in four children in our city live in poverty. What would Jesus do? Well, this morning's gospel story is good news for those of us who feel angry. Because this morning we see the side of Jesus that is ready to stand up in righteous anger about the world around him and demand a different perspective, a new course of action. This morning, we get to see not goody-two-shoes Jesus, but angry Jesus. Jesus turning over tables. Jesus fashioning a whip out of cords and driving animals out of the temple. Jesus yelling and making a scene in the holiest place of his religion. What is going on here in this story in the temple? What is Jesus doing? This is a story that appears in all four gospel accounts. In the other three, the story comes near the end of the narrative after Jesus has entered Jerusalem a final time. But in John, you might notice from the chapter citation, this story comes right at the beginning, chapter two of the story of Jesus. And John's telling of it is much more dramatic than the other three. It's the only one with a whip, for example. To really know what's going on here, you need to know something about the temple. We are blessed at Grace Church with a pretty big church building. You can fit a thousand people in here. And we have some big rooms around the church as well. The biggest is probably Tuttle Hall, where we have coffee hour every Sunday. And once a year in Tuttle Hall, we have a GCW, Grace Church Women Christmas Fair in there with tables of goods for sale. So if you are familiar with that, as you imagine this story from the gospel, you might be picturing Jesus rushing through Grace Church into Tuttle Hall, pushing over tables of gift bags, uh, as if the very fact of buying and selling in a holy place is what Jesus is upset about. But this is fundamentally missing what the temple was for Jewish people, how it was different than what church is for us. The temple was it, the central place of Jewish identity. It was the length of 12 soccer fields, and it had inner rooms with different levels of access, including a large outer ring for Gentiles to participate in the action of the temple. It was expected that all Jewish people would arrive for yearly festivals, and when they got there, they would make animal offerings. 
In the other Gospels, we see that Jesus' family participated in this, as when they offered doves at Jesus' presentation. The custom was to buy the animals for the offerings at the temple. You didn't have to bring your animal from far away, you just buy it when you get there. But the Roman money everyone was forced to use had images of the emperor on it, and so it wasn't holy to use that money to buy the offerings. And this is where you get the tables for changing the money from Roman to Jewish to buy the offerings. All of this was just how it was done. There is no evidence that the money changers were making an unfair profit, as you may have heard in your years of interpreting this story. There's no evidence that the temple was excluding certain people that they shouldn't have been excluding. The need for the money changing at all was because the Jewish people lived under occupation by the Roman Empire. And this was not the fault of any of the Jewish leaders. This was how the world was. And something about what was happening there angered Jesus. You can tell in the story that no one around him really understands what he sees that is unjust about what is happening, why he is so angry. Everyone is surprised. So early in the story of Jesus, they're wondering, why is Jesus so mad? Why does Jesus have a whip? And of course, Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer. Instead, he, he tries to show them a totally different perspective on the actions they are taking in the temple. Jesus tries to tell them what is really important. Destroy this whole thing, Jesus says, pointing around them at this vast place. And I will raise it again in three days. The people are totally shocked and confused We've been building this thing for 46 years, they respond. How could you raise it in three days? And Jesus reveals that he is talking about his own body. All the action of the temple, the 12 soccer fields of frenetic energy of thousands of people trying to please God, trying to get close to God, all of that is useless and unnecessary if you miss the humanity in front of you. The God who is in human flesh, waiting to take away all the pointless sacrifices of the world in order to show us what God truly wants for us. The God who is in human flesh showing us the possibility of freedom from occupation, from oppression, freedom from money's hold on us, and ultimately freedom over death, victory 
over 46 years of toiling over turning rubble into a temple. Victory over however many years we have on this earth worrying about how people perceive us or how much power we can hold on to or how we can make more and more money. Victory over the little deaths that chase us each day and victory over the big deaths we perpetrate in our selfish pursuits of comfort, status, or power. Yes, Jesus is angry because people will not change unless their lives, unless the status quo gets shaken up by righteousness. Exactly 111 years ago today, in Washington, D.C., March 3rd, 1913, was the day of the woman's suffrage procession, an historic march, the first organized activist march on Washington for political purposes. Between five and 10,000 people marched on this day, the day before Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated, and their purpose was to march in a spirit of protest against the present political organization of society from which women are excluded. In other words, to get women the right to vote. A couple key women put this march together. One was Lucy Burns, born in 1879 in Brooklyn. Burns spent more time in prison than any other American woman suffragist. She was described as a radical Irish Catholic firebrand. In her mid-twenties, she traveled to the UK to study, and there she met a fellow American, Alice Paul, in a London police station after both were arrested protesting for suffrage in front of Parliament. In August 1909, the two hid on the roof of the St. Andrews Hall in Glasgow to break through a, um, a sunroof, to break through a sunroof and disrupt a political speech in front of an all-male audience. Later, the two tried to enter another political meeting, and when they were unable to gain access, they broke police station windows and got a 10-day sentence where they went on hunger strike and damaged the cells they were staying in and refused to do prison work. When history tells the story of Lucy Burns and Alice Paul, it tells the story of beautiful, stately, measured women who fought valiantly to take society to what we might think of as an inevitable conclusion, that of course women are full human beings who should be able to vote and should be able to participate in society fully in any way that a man should be able to. And yet the truth of their resistance the truth of their anger, their action, 
their destruction of physical property in protest of a system that many people thought was actually pretty okay. The truth is this was uncomfortable. This was confusing for a lot of people. This was dangerous and ultimately this was self-sacrificial work. Burns was among the silent sentinels who picketed in front of the White House in 1917. She was held in solitary confinement for this and force-fed against her hunger strike, beaten and left overnight in handcuffs. In all in her life, she was imprisoned six times. Perhaps it is obvious, but the imprisonment of Lucy Burns and other activist women was totally legal in the eyes of our society at the time. She and her fellow sentinels broke the law in order to change it. So did Jesus, something that we know was not allowed in the temple was a weapon. And yet here we have in our gospel story this morning, Jesus Christ, building a weapon, a whip, and brandishing it in the temple, turning over tables, disrupting and destroying property, making a scene in protest. Jesus broke the law in order to change it, to make a scene large enough to wake people up to something bigger than what they were worried about. As you look around today, as you take in the state of the world, do not fear the anger you have about injustice. Do not fear the anger you have about violence, about exploitation, about inequality. Do not fear challenging the status quo. This is indeed the answer to that time-worn question, what would Jesus do? Jesus would be angry. Jesus is angry. Jesus would use that righteous fuel to make changes. But I wonder if there isn't an even better question for us today, rather than what would Jesus do? Because when we ask that question, we cast ourselves, maybe, as Lord and Savior of the world, if we expect that we should be able to do what Jesus does. What if we asked ourselves instead, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done that allows you to act? What has Jesus done to open your eyes to the world around you and to the ways you are beholden to the people around you? Because the temple is not 
it. It's great. We love the temple. Whatever that represents for you. But do not let it distract you from what you need to change. Your role in the body of Christ is what Jesus invites you to see through what he has already done for you. Amen.